Well, good morning. Great to have everybody here. Those of you who are watching online, the hoity-toity who have gone to your hoity-toity vacations over Memorial Day weekend, <laughs> on your docks, in your boats, in your beach in Jamaica, wherever you are, the 20 of us that are here have our <laughs> lamps trimmed and oiled and ready for Christ's return. And we hope he doesn't come back before you get a chance to come back. Uh, no, well, uh, we're glad that you're having fun, and we are here. Uh, you know, we're going through Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, as a sermon series. We're kind of almost done, be a few more weeks. And we're going to talk about chapter 11 today. It's kind of one of these chapters that's kind of the, you know, kind of evidence for the existence of God and creation, things like that. It's a little bit heady. It's a little bit intellectual. And I'm just going to be honest that it's not going to be for everybody in some sense, uh, because it's just not where you are. And so, I, I, but there are people here who are going to really need and want to hear what I have to say to me. So here's, in, on a pastoral way, let me just say, if you're kind of checking out in this sermon, I already know some of you are going to do that. I'm not offended. Don't be offended if I see you sleep. I'm pretty sure you'll be back next week. You'll be fine. But there'll be people here who, hearing what I say today, will help them want to come back next week. So I get that. This is one of those sermons that's just, you know, it's hard to preach as a pastor. We are going through a book. This is an important chapter. I do want to do a good job on it. And so let me just start by saying that, that you may have thought that believing in God was mostly a matter of faith rather than reason. And that to be a secular person, and what I mean by secular is what we've said in the first sermon series, the first sermon on this series, secular, not in the government sense, you know, church and state and all that, that's a, that's a different thing, but secular in the sense of a person who doesn't believe in God, believes that the material, physical universe is all there is, there's not a spirit world, that's what it means to be a secular person. I have a friend who calls himself a secular Jew, that's exactly what would describe him, and so you may have, you know, this kind of the narrative out there now is that to be secular is to believe more in reason and scientific evidence as a view of the world. And that you know, to believe in God is a kind of leap of faith that has to step over all the evidence to believe in God. And that, and that belief in God, that's the burden of proof. To believe in God requires proof that God exists. Now, in the New Testament, it makes a claim that's the exact opposite. It makes a really bold claim 2,000 years ago in the New Testament letter Paul wrote to the Romans in the very first chapter, very first page. He says this in verse 20. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's kind of weird. His invisible has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, it's making such a powerful argument from just the creation of the world that everybody is without excuse not to know who God is. His eternal power, his divine nature, his invisible qualities should be clearly seen. Now, you might read that and think, you know, that's kind of a, a relic of an archaic past that had a different view of the universe and that, you know, science has shown now that we have a definite, different understanding of how the universe exists and how life exists and how, what we see now. We have better explanations, more reasonable explanations for it. And that, that's the better, that's kind of replaced the Bible as the better explanation. And some of you believe that to the point where you're kind of having a little bit of a crisis of faith. 
that you know, you're holding on because maybe for different reasons you're holding on to your faith, but it's really becoming increasingly harder because of this narrative that's hitting you. Uh, people who just seem super confident that their worldview, their, their, their secularism has the side of evidence and has the side of reason and has the side of, of scientific evidence instead of just having to make this leap of faith. And it's been hard for you. I talked to a guy in my office a couple weeks ago, exactly that. He's on the edge of checking. In fact, he has been leaving his faith. Uh, I talked him in a meeting with me. He met with me. And, you know, he's just basically saying, you know, just the, the, the evidence, scientific evidence for all these things is just kind of causing me to have a crisis of faith and I'm just, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And I said to him what I'm going to say to you. And that's this. I said, they've tricked you. They've convinced you because of their confidence that they have the answers to the biggest questions of life. Ricky Gervais, Richard Dawkins, whatever. They've convinced you that science has answered the big questions of life, but they haven't answered any of them. They haven't answered a single one. And when he looked at me, I could see kind of hope come back in his eyes. But it's one thing to say what I just said. It's another thing to actually prove it, to show that. So what I want to do in the time I have now is sort of flesh out that claim that they haven't answered any of the questions and that still the best explanation is the verse we just read and th tons of other verses in the Bible of a creator. Because here's the thing. And again, this is going to, I, I, you're gonna have to come with me on a little bit of a very technical journey on some things. If you check out, that's fine, I'm not offended, but try to, try to stick with me a little bit because it's different than other sermons that we've had. But First of all, they haven't answered the mystery, the question of the origin of the universe. Now, here's what I mean. That, that up until about you know, mid-20th century, the scientific consensus was what's, was what's called the steady-state theory. That the universe was primarily just the matter that has existed infinitely, you know, infinitely, eternally, and that there's just the way the universe is and the matter stays the same. It's just a steady-state but in 1929, a guy named Edwin Hubble, the Hubble telescope is named after him. The Hubble telescope took this picture of a cluster of galaxies, 10,000 galaxies in that, in that cluster, just in that, in that area that the Hubble telescope took a photo of. And he noticed in 1929 that, he, that what's, when he looked at the light, you know, when you take college astronomy, one of the things you learn is to look at the light from stars through the spectrum thing. And because of the spectrum of light, you can see what the star is made of. And when he looked at the light that came from galaxies, that he noticed what's called the red shift. When the spectrum shifts to the red, that means it's moving away. And he thought, huh, every single galaxy, the light coming from every single galaxy had this red shift, which means that every single galaxy is moving away. And then he noticed that the further the galaxies were, the faster they were moving away. In other words, they were escaping the gravitational force of the other galaxies. So you may not think that's a big deal, but if you, if you reverse that, what it means, if all the galaxies are moving away and the further they get out from other galaxies, the faster they're moving away, that means if you go you know, reverse that, that means that everything came from a, a center at one point. 
Well, that was blown off by most physicists and they laughed at it and they made up a pejorative term called the Big Bang Theory. What was it? It was a Big Bang and they laughed and they all went back to their pipes. And yet, about the mid, maybe later part of the 20th century, another guy at Bell Laboratories discovered what's called the microwave echo. You don't have to know what that is, except to know that what it was, is it was equally dispersed everywhere, equally in the universe. And he said, well, that... This is proof of Edwin Hubble's theory. This is proof of a big explosion of the universe into existence suddenly at one point, billions of years ago. More scientists, astronomers, cosmologists, astrophysicists began to buy into maybe this isn't such a silly theory after all. And then a deluge of more evidence came in so that by the end of the 20th century, 20-something years ago, the vast majority of cosmologists, astrophysicists, astronomers by, say that, no, the Big Bang Theory is what they call it, is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. Now, this is a big deal because it means the universe had a beginning, right? It means that the entire universe is finite, not infinite, not eternal. It began at a place in time, and it began suddenly in, in a single moment, it began as an explosion of the universe into existence from nothing. This raises questions. How does something come from nothing? Something from the outside of time and space and matter had to be the cause of our universe. That's a big change in cosmology. And scientists that accepted the Big Bang weren't really comfortable with the implications of it. Philosoph atheist philosophers weren't really comfortable with the implications of it. But it even gets more mysterious because not just the Big Bang, but they noticed in the physics of the universe that right at the moment, within seconds of the Big Bang, the split seconds of the Big Bang, certain dials, if you want to think of them as knobs, in the physics of the universe, like the speed of light, the gravitational uh, for the gravitational uh, constant, the, the strong and weak nuclear force, the dark matter, and all these other kinds of things, the knobs were set just right to where it allows for life in the universe. They didn't have to be set at all these really fine-tuned settings for life to exist in the universe but they are, so much so the odds of it were, according to one book I read by an agnostic astronomer, I'll talk about him in a minute, not a Christian, not a believer, he said that the odds of life happening on Earth, the odds of all these settings being just right for life to happen on Earth are one in billions of trillions. So that's a pretty big likelihood that this is something that shows design. And it was a really uncomfortable, not just the Big Bang, but this fine-tuning of the universe was a really uncomfortable thing for secular scientists to have to work through, secular philosophers to have to work through. So Paul Davies, he's a, uh, he just, uh, until 2016, was an astronomy professor, astrophysicist, who specialized in uh, 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 quantum field uh, theory and specialized in astrobiology. Now, to me, that sounds like a George Costanza kind of job. Uh, astrobiology, I don't know what his life he's studying right now, but he's a, an expert in astronomy. He's a British astronomer 
taught at Cambridge, eventually, like I said, at Arizona State University, has published over 30 books on astronomy, astrophysics, all these kinds of things, widely published, widely quoted. If you watch a lot of these things on PBS on something about space, chances are they're going to have a Paul Davies interview in there somewhere. And he writes this in his book. He wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. Why is the universe, why is the universe just right? That's the Goldilocks idea for life. Again, he's an, he calls himself a religious agnostic, but he's intellectually honest, and that's why I like his book, and to be honest, a lot of Christians read his books because he's intellectually honest, and he kind of tells you where the issues really are. Uh, he's not trying to necessarily persuade. He's just saying, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. These are the mysteries, these are not the mysteries. And so he says this, he says, scientists have long been aware that the universe seems strangely suited to life, but they mostly chose to ignore it. It was an embarrassment. It looked too much like the work of a cosmic designer. And then he goes on to explain in his book how because of that, it looking like a work of a cosmic designer, that what began to pop into theories was something called the multiverse thesis. The multiverse thesis, and you may have seen it in superhero movies or Star Trek, but it's just a thesis that was brought because of the the, what's seen in the whole appearance of design in the universe. And the multiverse theory thesis is that there are an infinite number of universes. The multiverse is infinite, it's eternal, it's constant, but there are an infinite number of universes that pop into existence like different bubbles. And some of them would not have the properties fine-tuned for life. Most of them would not have the properties fine-tuned for life. But because there's an infinite number of them, inevitably you're going to come across at least one, if not some, that have the settings just right, like our universe, for life. And the reason why our universe has the settings just right for life is because we're here, after all, because we won the lottery. And so we're observing our universe. Now, the thing about that is... The question is, is that a scientific theory? Is there scientific evidence for the multiverse? And here's what Paul Davies, again, an agnostic, not a Christian, here's what he says. He says that in spite of its widespread appeal and its apparently neat solution of the Goldilocks enigma, in other words, the fine-tuning of all the things for life, there are many scientists who dismiss the multiverse as a speculation too far. The multiverse comes across as a cheap way out. And then Paul Davies goes on to say, another frequently voiced criticism of the multiverse is that it isn't science because it can't be tested by experiment or observation. So the multiverse can't at least now be tested. So in this, resp- in this respect, the multiverse theory hovers on the borderline between science and fantasy, like, kind of like science fiction. So he says, although a strong motivation, this is Paul Davies' words, Again, an agnostic, not a, not a Christian. Uh, a strong motivation for introducing the multiverse concept is to get rid of the need for design. Something must be accepted on faith, even in the scientific accounts. Now, when you read his books, I just tried to pick out a quote because I, had to, you know, get, I didn't want to have too many quotes up here. I've got too many as it is, you'll find out. But I wanted to just kind of pick as, much, as little as I can. But here's what he's saying. Whether you believe in God created the universe or whether you believe that there's a multiverse that pops different universes into existence, both require a step of faith. Neither of them have scientific evidence. You're gonna have to step in faith either way. 
So the question is, which, well, which way, which, if there's no scientific for the multiverse, then what is the explanation for the existence of the universe? Well, they haven't, they haven't answered it. I mean, they just have a, a speculation that borderlines, according to Paul Davies, the astronomer, on science and fantasy. But it was mainly motivated because the universe showed too much signs of a designer, and so they had to have another theory. But is there scientific evidence? Have they answered the question for the existence of the universe? And the answer is no, they haven't answered the question at all. There's no science, here it is, I want you to hear me. There's no scientific evidence of how the universe came into existence. None. So, I mean, in, in the sense of what caused it. Yes, there's a big bang, but what caused the big bang? But rather, there is scientific evidence that there was a big bang. There is scientific evidence that the universe began, that it's not eternal, it had a beginning. So the question is, well, something doesn't come from nothing, so what caused it? And the fine-tuning of the universe raises even more in the very first seconds of the Big Bang that it was so fine-tuned, a chance of one in billions of trillions fine-tuned for life. Well, that's, a, that's not a lot of scientific evidence that you don't need a God, you don't need a designer. There's no scientific evidence that contradicts the Bible at all. But it's even, when it comes to life itself, here's the thing, how did life begin? You might think that biologists have answered the question. They know how life began. But there's no scientific answer to it whatsoever. You might think there is, but there's not. Now here's where I have to read a lot. Those of you who aren't interested in this, I, there's nothing I can do at this point. But if you can follow along, and I, I really worked. I spent all day yesterday cutting quotes because I knew I couldn't have too many. But what I chose, I chose because I think it really matters. So here's what Paul Davies says in his book that I was quoting before. Here's what he says about life. Now remember, he's an astrobiologist, at least that's his specialty. So he does know about biology. And he says this, biological organisms are immensely complex. To a physicist, they look nothing short of miraculous. Now, this, that's his words, not mine. They look nothing, biological organisms look nothing short of miraculous. The living cell contains minuscule, and these are his words, pumps, levers, motors, rotors, turbines, propellers, scissors, and many other instruments familiar from a human workshop. The command and control functions of the cell are encoded in its DNA database, which implements instructions through intermediary molecules using an optimal mathematical code to convert software instructions into hardware products with customized functionality. And this is just one cell. Then he goes on and he says, in a larger organism, vastly many cells get together and cooperate to form organs such as eyes, ears, brains, livers, and kidneys, many of them immensely elaborate in their structure and function. The human brain alone has more cells than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So it all adds up to a package of marvels that boggles the mind. And then he says this, catch this. If you didn't listen, listen at least to this slide. It has to be admitted that the origin of life remains a deep mystery. 
But that cannot be used as an argument against Darwinian, Darwinian evolution because biogenesis, in other words, the beginning of life, is not part of evolutionary theory. Now, I'm not talking about evolution. I'm not saying evolution is true or false. That's not all what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is there's a difference between evolution of how one species goes into another and the origin of life. He says that the origin of life, how life started, is not even part not even what evolutionary theory does. And he says it has to be admitted that the origin of life still remains a deep mystery. They don't have an answer of how life started. Nobody has an answer. They have theories, but there's no scientific evidence. It still remains a deep mystery. Now here's where it's gonna get kinda long, but there's a philosopher named Thomas Nagel, philosopher at New York University, an atheist philosopher, teaches at New York University, taught at Cambridge, or excuse me, taught at uh, Princeton before that. And he says, he's a widely published philosopher, been publishing for decades, a very well-known atheist philosopher, believes in all the atheist things you have to believe to be an atheist philosopher. But he's honest, intellectually honest, and especially in his book called Mind and Cosmos. He talks about this whole idea of how life began and the theories, what we have and what we know and what we don't know. And he writes this in his book, Mind and Cosmos. He says, no viable account, this is an atheist philosopher, no viable account, even a purely speculative, speculative one, seems to be available of how a system of staggeringly, functionally complex and information-rich as a self-producing cell. There's, there's no, right now, no theory of how uh, just a single self-reproducing cell can exist, how it sprang into existence. And then he says this, controlled by DNA, RNA, or some predecessor could have arisen by chemical evolution alone from a dead environment. So here's what he's saying. It's one thing to believe that somehow a dead universe of just matter, somehow something happened where all the things got right exactly in the pre-mortal slime and exactly at the right moment with exactly the right elements and a living cell was created. It's another thing entirely to have all the coded DNA and RNA to reproduce another cell in that very first cell that it just popped into existence. That's a whole new Twinkie. That's a whole new ball game. And he says there's no explanation for that whatsoever. And so he goes on and he says, he says although scientists continue to seek, still an endeavor, a purely chemical explanation of the origin of life there are also card-carrying scientific naturalists, I've been using the word secularist, but that's the same word, naturalists, like Francis Crick, who say that it seems almost a miracle. That was Francis Crick's word, that, the, the first, that life coming into existence seems almost a miracle. Crick is led by his reflection on the probabilities to the hypothesis of directed panspermia. Now, I'll let you figure out what that word means but they have to come up with something scientific to sound like they know what they're doing. And here's what directed panspermia is. The earth was seeded with unicellular life, in other words, single cell organisms, sent from an advanced civilization elsewhere in our galaxy where life had evolved earlier. So just backing up the problem, this depends on the supposition that there were other planets of other stars whose physical environment made the accidental formation of life less unlikely. And then he goes on and he says, but Crick acknowledges that there is no basis for confidence 
about any of these likelihoods. So here's the thing. Atheists might be right. It's just that they haven't answered any of the big questions of how the universe began, why it's so fine-tuned for life, and how life began. They haven't answered any of those questions with any kind of scientific evidence. So again, they might be right, but it's not as if they're on the side of all the rationality and I'm the one making a leap of faith? Really? You're saying panspermia is how life started from aliens from another planet? Okay, maybe. But you, you admit you have no basis for any confidence in that whatsoever. When you listen to people like Richard Dawkins talk or this you know, Francis Crick talk or others, they all kind of have the same thing, that life came here from an alien species. Or maybe a meteor brought life here from another planet. But it's always this, well, we don't think it probably started on Earth. Okay, we admit, it had to come from outside. But, the, it, but when you admit that it has to come out from the outside, you admit you don't have any evidence, and you admit it's still a big, big, big problem. So they shouldn't have the confidence. That, they might be right, but they shouldn't have the confidence they're, that they're causing you to have a crisis of faith over let me just quickly say one more, and that's consciousness, or we would say the soul. No secular brain neurologist has an explanation for the mind. None of them have a definition they can all settle on. None of them have an understanding of the consciousness. And yet, even philosophers like, like uh, Thomas Nagel admit that consciousness is real. But if you believe in a merely physical universe then you also have to say that humans are just physical beings because we're part of the universe. So, which means that we don't have a soul, that if we're not, there's no spiritual world, there's, no, there's only material, that means that whatever you think of, when you think of like when a loved one dies, you think they have to, you know, that they're, they're somewhere else, that they didn't just stop existing. Or the, the thought that love is real, that when you love somebody, that's a real love for a real person. Or the belief in beauty, when you see something, it's because it's beautiful, not because of something else just materially happening, or meaning in life, or morals of right and wrong. You have to believe, if you're going to be a secularist, you have to believe that all of these things are merely simply chemicals, event, neurological chemical events in the brain. That's all it is. But most of us find that to be counterintuitive to what we think about having a soul, having consciousness. That's not just events in the brain that are chemical events. Even Steve Jobs, when he was dying and, and Walter Isaacson was interviewing him for the biography, Steve Jobs, he says this, Steve Jobs said, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye, and then reflecting on him, you know, he was dying, so he, Steve Jobs went on to say, it's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really wanna believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. Now, if we have consciousness that's, that's not an illusion, that is real, that is not just wires and chemical events in the brain, that love is real, that there is something about somebody that doesn't just cease to exist when they die, that meaning is real, beauty is real, morals are real. If that's real, then the, the, mater, the merely material universe can't be the truth, can't be reality, because this is a non-material reality. It's going beyond just the wiring and chemicals of the brain. And so that's why Thomas Nagel, who says, well, it's really self-evident that consciousness is real? 
an atheist philosopher says it's self-evident that consciousness is real, and he says there is a crisis of faith among secular scientists because of it. They're the ones actually having a crisis of faith because of just consciousness. And he writes about it, and I had to cut a lot, but I chose something that's important, so just stick with me here. This is the last. We're almost done. He writes this in his book, Mind and Cosmos. He says, human consciousness threatens to unravel the entire naturalistic picture, whole worldview. This infects our entire naturalistic understanding of the universe as untenable. He goes on and he says, for a satisfactory explanation of, this is where it gets really wordy, so stick with me, for a satisfactory explanation of consciousness as such, a general psychophysical theory of consciousness would have to be woven into the evolutionary story, one which makes intelligible both why specific organisms have the conscious life that they have and why conscious organisms arose in the history of life on Earth. At this point, here's what I want you to catch, such a theory is complete fantasy. Complete fantasy. Any naturalistic theory of why humans have consciousness, but we know that they do. And he's admitting right now that any scientific explanation is complete fantasy, but we need one. He thinks there will be one, but he acknowledges that there isn't one. So here's the thing. If they don't have a scientific explanation for the consciousness, isn't If consciousness is real, isn't the existence of God a better explanation? If there's not really a better one right there out out there? Isn't the existence of God a better explanation for the existence of the universe when we know it began? Isn't the existence of God, a creator, a better explanation for why the universe is so, in the very split second of the existence of the universe, fine-tuned beyond any incredible odds for life? Isn't the existence of God a better explanation for how living cells even began, how life even began, when there's no other scientific evidence to the contrary? I don't know. I mean, I don't know who's making the bigger leap of faith, but you do have to make a step of faith. Which way have you been stepping? Maybe it's not so archaic. Maybe it's not so out of date. The Bible's explanation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Maybe it's not so strange what Romans 1.20 said, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, we can't see God admitted, but his eternal power and divine nature have been still clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So much so that people are without excuse. I wonder, do you need to stop making excuses to not notice? Maybe it's time for you to look again with fresh eyes. Let me pray. Lord, the Bible says you are the I am. You are he is. You are the source of all existence. You're the giver of all life. Every cell gets its life from you. You sustain all life at every moment. You are the one who inhabits eternity. And you created time. And you created space. And you created this universe. And you created life. And nobody else has any evidence to the contrary. It's still the best answer out there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
and that what is invisible is clearly seen and understood by what has been made. We thank you that that is still so clear that everybody is without excuse. So I pray that you help us look again and stop making excuses. And I pray this in Jesus' name.